0: It's the most magical place on Earth. But for a few years, it had a dark spot. A spot that ranked among the scariest.
1: This week, we revisit the most terrifying ride that Disney World ever offered. Just because something is popular at first, that does not necessarily mean it will be forever. In the year 2006, Heinz Brand learned this the hard way. We'll reflect on the failed assumption that green ketchup would have a long lifespan. The movie's over and no one leaves.
0: Why? The post-credit scene, of course. When did post-credit scenes start? And why does everyone but me love them? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Today, my boy, either as a kid or as an adult. Have you ever been to Disney World?
1: Yeah, I went uh, with my family, but I was pretty young, so it's not really something that I remember very well. How old were you? Uh, I'm not even really sure. Two,
0: three, four, five?
1: No, it was probably like six or seven, if I had to guess. so still, Um, yeah, still very young.
0: Yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've been twice, so once I was also super young, like five, six, seven, somewhere around in there. I basically remember nothing. It's just snapshots in my mind that may or may not have happened. But then I went again when I was 13 or 14, and while that's now been uh, about two decades ago at this point, uh, I do remember a lot of that still in very vivid detail. So first of all, I was in the I'm too cool to smile phase of life. So, every picture is of me frowning (laughs) as hard as possible, even though, as soon as the picture was over, I guarantee you, I was begging my mommy to get me some overpriced cotton candy. You're supposed to
1: be in the happiest place on earth, and you can't (laughs) even fake a smile for mom.
0: Uh, That's when K-Swiss shoes were were really big, too. I had these very white K-Swisses on. Were they
1: really big, or were they really big with you? Uh,
0: Moving on, the second thing (laughs) I remember is my terrifying experience, Jay, with a ride called Extra-Terrestrial Alien Encounter, a.k.a. the scariest Disney ride ever opened and subsequently closed
1: in Disney World. Have you ever heard of Alien Encounter? No, that is uh, that is totally oh, new information to me. Perfect! Make. You are in for a treat, my friend.
0: Jay, it didn't feature steep plunges, high-speed turns, or costumed, lovable characters, But Alien Encounter was ambitious nonetheless. It aimed to be one of the premier thrill rides at Disney World. Work on the ride began in the late 1980s, but when then-chairman and CEO Michael Eisner experienced a test run of the ride in 1995, he was unimpressed. Meant to be a showpiece of Disney's $100 million Tomorrowland makeover of the 90s, Alien Encounter had big expectations. Despite Eisner's reviews, early test riders disagreed. They were scared silly. Still though, Jay, Eisner wasn't satisfied enough to greenlight it being opened and ordered the designers to go back to work and make it scarier. So Jay, make it scarier, they did. (laughs) And by the summer of 1995, the scariest ride in Disney's history officially opened. The concept, Jay, was this. Pretty simple. Guests sit in an arena-styled theater, all facing an animatronic alien scene in the middle of the room. In this scene, scientists are studying a captured alien. The alien, diverting from Disney's family-friendly vibe, was modeled after something from the Alien movie franchise, an R-rated horror movie with plenty of violence. You remember the scene where the little alien pops out of of someone's chest? How can I forget? Just think about that. Jay Eisner even hired George Lucas, your boy, the famous creator of Star Wars, to consult on the creation of this ride. And when the ride opened, it did exactly what Eisner hoped it would, terrified guests. As the show began, the alien, of course, would escape. The use of animatronics, complete darkness, like Jay, when the alien escaped, the whole theater went pitch black. You couldn't see it there. <laughs> and effects built into your seat. Like water would splash in your face to make it seem like there was maybe blood hitting you in the face. And warm air would then would come out on your neck make it seem like the alien was right behind you. All of this led to screams filling the theater for every showing without exception. Though no one was ever physically hurt during the ride, it did inflict plenty of emotional damage. Easily Disney's most divisive ride ever, guests either hated it and felt betrayed by Disney, or immediately got back in line to ride it again. Despite its cult following, though, Jay, the ride closed just eight short years after it opened in 2003. It was then repurposed into a friendlier Alien ride based on the popular Lilo and Stitch franchise. The new Alien Encounter, though, failed to ever really resonate, limping along for the next handful of years before it would eventually close for good. So, Jay, even though it's now been closed for about 20 years, Alien Encounter still maintains a strong cult following for those lucky or unlucky enough to have experienced it. For me, and I'm really, I'm not making this up, I left the ride with two things. One, a sore throat from screaming, and two slightly wet pants from just the smallest amount of fear-based pee.
1: So you're telling me all that toughness that you just put on that, that was all just a show. When you really got, when the lights gone. went down, the the kid and you came out, the fear. Thankfully,
0: I was wearing huge, baggy, black
1: jean shorts, so you couldn't really tell. <laughs> the huge shorts, the K-Swiss shoes. I mean, uh, why don't you try to bring that back? So Dave, uh, several years ago, I distinctly remember my sister asking my mom if we could buy green ketchup because it was something that had hit the store shelves. And if you were alive, kind of between, or like at an age where you could remember it, kind of between 2000 and 2006, you probably remember this too, that this was a big thing. And I remember that it made me so angry that it was in our house because it looked so gross and like part of my sister kind of like liked that it grossed me out. Like that was part of the fun, I guess, you know, and uh, it just became like a big sticking point in our house. Now, I already know the answer to this because I know that to this day, you hate ketchup. You really hate m- all condiments. Basically, uh, you're kind of a uh, give me the burger plane kind of guy. But uh, did you ever have the multicolored ketchup in your household? First of all,
0: I'm a grown man. Let me eat what I want to eat. So just leave <laughs> me, me alone. Um, and, uh, give me the chicken tenders and
1: give me the fries.
0: So yeah, I'm the, I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I hate ketchup. You're right. I've always hated ketchup. I can tell you the last time I had ketchup, actually. It was 2006 at a Long John Silver's. So probably not the best representation of ketchup, but still. I'm telling you, my taste buds haven't changed. My son actually had some tonight with his dinner, and he, long story, but he had to sit on my lap while I was eating dinner tonight. I'm gagging the whole time.
1: Like, I can barely breathe. <laughs> That's a little dramatic. I'm just trying not but... to. Th-
0: no, I'm <laughs> serious. I'm trying not to throw up, because it just smells so horrible.
1: What is it about it? Is it like a texture thing? Ugh. Like.
0: I don't know, man. I mean, I don't <laughs> hate all
1: sauces. I like barbecue sauce and stuff like
0: that. I mean, it kind of looks the same. Okay, but it's but just, like ugh! but
1: like mustard is a no. You know, like mayonnaise uh, mustard, is a mustard. No.
0: People that eat mustard
1: should be arrested <laughs> on site. Well, Dave, uh, we're going to go back to the year 2000 when the movie Shrek was hitting theaters, which is a film that weirdly... Somehow
0: Shrek's come up multiple times. So I was going to say deal?
1: that. Like, it weirdly kind of comes up a lot on our <laughs> show. And I don't think it's because we like it. I think it's just because it was that impactful, like, from a cultural standpoint. <laughs> So I think it's important to point that out. But one company in particular took advantage and capitalized Heinz. So Heinz, famous for their condiments, but particularly for ketchup, released a line of ketchup called Heinz Easy Squirt. This new style of ketchup came in a bottle with a rolling glue style spout, but it had one very distinct, very jarring difference from normal ketchup. It was dyed green. And at least initially, Dave, Hines' Easy Squirt took off to the moon. Over 10 million bottles of the stuff was sold in the first seven months, boosting overall Hines sales by 5.4% advertising swept the nation's TVs, and curious kids and parents bought so much that Heinz was inspired to create even more colors like purple and blue. But therein lies the fork in the road, Dave. Green ketchup, well, it's linked to Shrek, sure, but also green ketchup, at least subconsciously, isn't that crazy. I mean, tomatoes can be red and green, but blue and purple, well, not quite as close. Marketing executives assumed naturally that if the people loved green ketchup, well, they'd have to love blue and purple too, right? Marketing research wasn't really conducted here. The brand was sort of just assuming that the success of one would mean the success of many and launched the new line of colors. But by 2006, the line of products was discontinued by Heinz. So what happened? It seems like initially what was hailed as a success may have been more of an initial boom in households trying the product, but not necessarily becoming consistent consumers of the product. The novelty of multicolored ketchup was just that. It was a novelty. Heinz, in the meantime, interpreted success as automatically translating into future success. Calvin Hodock, in his book, Why Smart Companies Do Dumb Things, said it this way, Here is what Heinz really forgot. The apparent success of green or purple ketchup was the novelty of its entertainment value. Kids could doodle with it at mealtime, playing tic-tac-toe, or making smiley faces on their burger patties. Blue fries, on the other hand, just lie on the plate staring at you. The other thing that Heinz overlooked was that green and purple ketchup had limited staying power. Kids tired of it being fickle little devils that they are, and moms got tired of seeing two or three half-finished ketchup bottles lying around the fridge. And Dave, the ketchup line also offered no extra nutritional value, and whether this was just your brain playing tricks on you or not, it sort of just had just enough different taste to be unappetizing. So ultimately here, Dave, what can we learn from this product collapse, which at least at first seemed to be a home run, but within a few years had pretty definitively collapsed? Well, for one, this story highlights the importance of market research and identifying your audience. Heinz attributed the tidal wave of their success of their product to factors that would translate into sustained success, rather than for what it was, a fad. Heinz had a degree of brand value to a certain aesthetic that their product had, and Easy Square did not match that aesthetic at all, pivoting from their traditional image. Parents also, at the end of the day, are the ones forking over the cash for the product, not kids. And ultimately, the ketchup hit shelves at a time when parents were becoming a little more health-conscious about additives to their kids' food, particularly food coloring. Marketing towards kids is important, yes, but it is nowhere as important as it is marketing to the parents. Convincing the parents that the product should be in their fridge is more important, and Heinz did not consider this bypassing parents who, let's be honest, were mostly grossed out by the ketchup. So then, Dave, the question then remains, is there any hope for the resurrection of multicolored ketchup? Well, probably not. The only thing that you have going for you here is the nostalgia value, which I don't think is probably powerful enough to carry you. But for what it's worth, Burger King did convince Heinz to do an anniversary promotional in 2012 and put green ketchup in packets. But the promotional came and went and then there was never anybody ever talking about it again. So you tell me what that means about its success.
0: So I am in the minority for sure, but I'm not alone. So, according to Eat This Not That, uh, 10% of (laughs) Americans. It uh, it seems, yeah, it actually is. (laughs) They have a logo and everything. Um, 10% of Americans say that they do not eat ketchup. So, one in 10 is like me. Uh, Another 23% say that it's the one condiment they would choose if they could only choose one for the rest of their life. Well,
1: I thought you were going to say that you had found like a Facebook group like people against ketchup or something <laughs> like that and there was I'm sure it's there was like there. a change.org petition and all kinds of stuff going on. Stop it now. <laughs> Stop it now. I would love to think about the image of your son eating ketchup on your lap, but it's like purple ketchup. or something. It like makes it that much more gross.
0: Now, apparently I have this. This is a real thing. Um, are you
1: about to tell me like a medical diagnosis
0: <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's a medical diagnosis it's just true hold on okay here we go it's called mortisquisophobia and it means that you have a
1: fear of ketchup <laughs> yeah well you keep telling yourself that I don't know. Really have a fear of when it when you tell the uh, when you a grown man tell the waitress that you'd like a cheeseburger plain uh, you know you, just, you mortis- just keep telling yourself that that's fine
0: Occasionally controversial on this show, but in a harmless way, right? Like, you've insulted people who like peeps, and I've insulted folks who, like yourself, believe in aliens. Well, the
1: people who like peeps deserve it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't argue with you there. Uh, But a few weeks ago, you outed perhaps my most controversial trait on this show. Do you recall what that may be?
1: Uh, That you leave during the post-credit scenes of movies when they have post-credit scenes?
0: Bingo, baby.
1: <laughs> but you do it, it's because you do it as like a power grab against the movie execs. Like, it's like, it's not even that you're crunched for time. Like, you could, it's, that's not the problem. It's that you're, you think you're like personally sticking it to like the people who made the film.
0: I'm telling you, there's something, there's a rush that you just can't get in your normal life. When the movie's over, you do maybe a big stretch. Like, ah, I kind of make a, make a noise. Ah, you get up, collect your stuff. You walk out, everyone else is sitting there. <laughs> There's something
1: there. I'm See, you that's man. what I'm saying. Like, you like being that guy. It's not, it's not a, even about... We're not even talking about the scene anymore or the post-credit scenes. It's just you just like being that guy. We are who we are.
0: <laughs> uh, but my opinion aside, Jay, most people, like yourself, love post-credit scenes. But where did this concept really come from? And why do we as a society, once again, me aside, love it so much? Well, believe it or not, post-credit scenes have been around for decades. In fact, one of the first instances happened in 1979 during the movie Meatballs, I'm sure you're a Meatballs fan, where a character wakes up in his own bed on a raft in the middle of a lake. But while they aren't necessarily new, they are definitely on the upswing when it comes to popularity. They're now found basically everywhere. Everything from the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Don't Look Up to last year's Matrix Resurrections. Nobody, though, Jay, and I mean nobody, does it like Marvel. The first post-credit Marvel scene came after Iron Man, the first Marvel studio movie ever. It featured Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. After the movie ended and you sat through all of the credits a 36-second teaser played that set the stage for the entire Avengers universe. And Jay, when audiences found out about it, they loved it. Marvel president Kevin Feige said in a 2018 interview with Entertainment Weekly that it was actually Ferris Bueller's day off that inspired the scene. After the credits roll, Ferris, played by Matthew Broderick, tells the audience to go home. Feige saw that little moment as a kind of gift. It was the greatest thing in the world, Feige told Entertainment Weekly. I thought it was hilarious. It was like a little reward for me for sitting through the credits. Feige's approach, Jay, while similar, is also very different. He doesn't use the post-credit scenes to send the audiences home. He instead tells them to get excited about coming back. More fun is on the way even though the fun J was not at all guaranteed with that first Iron Man post-credit. While we know Marvel as an entertainment juggernaut today, it was an unproven vehicle back then. Superhero movies just didn't do well at the box office. Iron Man, though, broke the curse. It made nearly $600 million during its theatrical run, and Iron Man paved the way J for everything that has followed in the Marvel Universe. So after Iron Man, Marvel kept doing it, basically training the audience to stick around after the movie. And Jay stick around, the audiences do. To date, only one Marvel movie does not have an end credit scene. That's Avengers Endgame, which was on purpose to signify the end of that specific Marvel chapter. The audience buys in, like no matter what, they've come to expect that it's part of the experience. Eric Davis, the managing editor at Fandango, told Vox, I kind of think it's like the cherry on top of the sundae, or even getting the fortune cookie at the end of the meal. We don't need the fortune cookie. It's not going to make us even more full, but we look forward to it. And Jay, with the commitment, Marvel has created something that prolongs the magic of the moment by incentivizing fans and raising hype for future projects. And in a way, post-credit scenes have become their own industry. People like me who leave still watch them somewhere, and websites or blogs, they they exist purely to provide commentary on the post-credits. So all of this naturally raises the question, why don't other people do it? Well, like I said at the top, more and more studios are trying to do it themselves. The issue is they just don't do it well. Often the post-scene, like in the Matrix Resurrections, is just a meaningless, jokey scene, or even worse... Sometimes it sets the table for a sequel that will never be made. But something that can't be argued about is what it does for the folks who worked on the movie. Whether you pay attention or not, you see the name of all the bajillion people who worked on the film. And as someone who has been in a film before, my three-second scene in the 2004 documentary Supersize Me, every person that works on a film
1: matters. Well, I kind of am wondering, like, when you get up to leave during a post credit scene, like... Do the people in the audience know that you know, or do they think that you don't know? You know what I mean? Like they're like, he doesn't know. There's a post credit scene, or do they know that you know that there's one that you're just not staying? That's a great question. The confidence that
0: I I I exude when I do that, I guarantee you, the vast majority, there's always some haters, but the vast majority of the people think, man.
1: I wish I could do that. Man, so, like, the people who make these movies just, like, live rent-free in your head. Like, you're, like, thinking about your exit, like, how your exit's going to look. Which, by the way, it it should be said again that when this happens, uh, you and I are sometimes watching a movie together, and you do just leave me there alone. <laughs> that should also be just restated. I'm sorry, man.
0: <laughs> I, I'm sorry if I'm not going to change. <laughs> And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For j Sisson. and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Marvel Is the Marvel president Kevin
1: Feig? Uh, it's Feige. Feig, Feige. Feigey. Feige, okay, yeah, yeah, I'd get roasted for that. One. I think last year. <laughs> yeah, definitely not Fig. Fig, like <laughs> you, nerd. I would have had it's to stop you. I would have had to stop you. What a nerd. <laughs> so Feige, Feige, yeah.